I was very driven and passionate about the topic that I was talking about. I was basically kind of preaching, you know, it wasn't called digital nomadism, but I was preaching a, a new way to live your life. Before I guess Tim Ferriss wrote his book, I was teaching the same thing, you know, how to break free from the traditional career path, how to have enough income online, travel, you know, efficiency, delegation, um, elegant business models, all these things that I cared about. So I started teaching that to people. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshavsky, and welcome to episode 129 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Yaro Starek, the founder of Inbox Done, and to my knowledge, one of the first digital nomads and content creators on the subject. Yara has been building online businesses since the late 90s and became a digital nomad in the early 2000s, before that was even an official term, and since then has helped tons of people build a location-independent business. You will learn three important things from this interview. Number one, what happened between 2007 and 2009 that helped trigger the digital nomad rush? Number two, how online business and the digital nomad movement will change over the next 10 years. And finally, number three, why despite all the different communication tools out there, email continues to be so dominant and why Yaro believes it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But before we jump into this interview, you guys, make sure that you subscribe to my YouTube channel, which you can find a link to in the show notes for this episode. I publish every podcast interview there in video form and I also release original content every Monday and Friday about the digital nomad lifestyle, remote work and online business that you can only find there on YouTube. To subscribe just click on the link in the show notes or search for my full name on YouTube, Mitko Karshavsky. Finally, I'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. I've made it very easy to leave a review. All you have to do is just head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's that easy, you guys. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are a key statistic that podcasting apps will look at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. And thank you for joining me over on YouTube. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Yaro Starek. All right, Yaro, welcome to the show, man. I am so excited to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me, Mitko. I'm, I'm also excited to, to be here. Yeah, like we were saying uh, before we hit record, I've been following you now for uh, years and I'm super stoked to have you on here. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with uh, what you do and you're kind of like one of the original digital nomads and you know online business people. And I was kind of like doing a little bit of research before we got started just so that I'm a little bit more fresh with uh, you know all the things that you've been up to. Um, but there's a hundred different directions that we could go with this interview. You know, we can talk about blogging. We can talk about solar power. I know you have a solar <laughs> yeah. farm. You have education. You have so many things that you've done. But one of the things that I find really interesting is that you have really been doing this for a very, very long time and have that viewpoint of like, hey, where a lot of people are going, you're kind of coming back from, like we mentioned, you know, like we kind of started from different sides of the business world and, yeah. uh, and are kind of passing ourselves the moment. What in the very beginning when you, you know, kind of got started, you, like I said, you're one of the first digital nomads, mm -hmm. uh, as far as I know. What was that like in the very beginning? Because I think you were like in 04, 05 is kind of like when you got started online big time. So what made you at that at that early kind of stage say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run an online business and I'm going to travel full time. Uh, well, yeah. So, I mean, even earlier than that, really, uh, it was 1990s um, when I was 18. And we know, you know, the dot-com bubble was happening. 
I wasn't necessarily thinking about digital nomadism at that point, especially because that term didn't exist. Like there was no such yeah. thing as a digital nomad, <laughs> right? So I knew of this new ballooning place for business called the World Wide Web. And I knew the things I wanted to avoid in my life, which was a full-time job, uh, waking up to an alarm clock, a cap on my potential income, a boss, you know, all the things that most traditional jobs and careers have. So I, I was seeing the obvious, I needed to start a business um, and I probably would do it online. Uh, that was the, the obvious fit. Still really didn't know what kind of business I would start. So, I mean, I got in, I mean, you probably know this from studying me, but my, my first kind of website was a card game business on the card game Magic the Gathering. Um, again, it, I wasn't really thinking digital nomad with that business. I was just, I want to have a website. And, you know, the first version of that business website was actually on GeoCities for those really old timers <laughs> who really know the original web. That was like, um, I guess you'd call it the, the Shopify or the the WordPress of the of the time. It was a website builder. And, and then eventually I, I learned HTML and bought myself a domain name and moved forward. What really happened though was I didn't make enough money to survive from that card game business. So I needed to start something that would potentially bring more money in. And around the same time I was thinking that, I was also studying a few important books like um, The E-Myth. So learning about to build a business that runs without you and you're more of the owner and less of the technician or the manager. So that was an important idea to me. There were other books I read that kind of influenced this too, sometimes because of the opposite reason. I read a lot of entrepreneur bios, including uh, tech startup bios, even you know the early days. It, it might have been a big story like how did Amazon start or a small story like how did a mom blogger start her, her mom website? I shouldn't say a blogger though. I wasn't even a blogger back then. It would have been like a mom uh, website owner uh, right. blogs. But anyway, and what happened was I, I learned about these entrepreneurs and they were also working like 12 hour days, super stressed out. So I was like, oh my gosh, there's no clear path here because either I'm in, in control of my own destiny, but I have to work 12 hours to make a living or I'm in, under someone else's control. So I was very careful about business models and, and figuring out how to have that freedom Fast forward to like what you said, around like early 2000s, I started an essay editing company called Better Edit that was, you know, essentially, an, I guess, an agency, what you'd call it today. But really, it was more of what I called a, a many to many business because I just read about eBay and how that company got started. And I love this idea of you're in the middle of a transaction between two groups, which obviously eBay was kind of like the, the first ever version of that online, a marketplace. So I wanted to do that with an essay editing company where I would bring contract editors and then I'd get the students who would buy the services from them and I'd take a percentage of the transaction. So I did that and really that's when the idea for travel became important to me. Also because I was getting older, you know, at 18, 19, didn't have the money to travel. Any, any Only time I traveled before that was with family. Early 20s, I'm starting to like, okay, I want to go to Canada. But of course, I was in Australia at the time. I want to go to Canada by myself. I want to maybe see some more places along the way. So that's when I'm thinking, can I take the business with me? And in fact, I did. I took it with me and, and promoted it in, in university campuses. It was crazy. I, I went to Hawaii. And you don't normally do this, but I went to Hawaii University to put up posters to promote my essay editing company. Then did the same thing in Canada at three campuses You know, in Toronto where my family lived. So uh, but one of the key things at that time was learning about the uh, the components of the business that I was doing versus the parts that I should hand over to other people. Uh, and that was a key ingredient to figuring out how to become a digital nomad. And if you fast forward, I kind of stopped talking now, but if you fast forward to 2007, that's when I think the term digital nomad became mainstream, probably because of Tim Ferriss or certainly people writing about travel more and, and running businesses. So I was trying to do all that without having a label for it in that kind of early 2000s period. Do you think it was just Tim Ferriss coming out with the four-hour work week that, because for me, like I know people who are doing the digital nomad thing, quote unquote, before then, but it seems like something happened around 2007, 8, 9, where you see a lot more people coming into the lifestyle. Do you think that it was just the the fact that Tim Ferriss wrote that book and kind of like showed that it was possible? Or do you think there was something technological or societal that allowed for a lot more people to kind of gain that independence? 
It's tough to say. I mean, Tim and his book had such a wide ranging impact on people. You know, the number of podcasts you listen to and someone will say, I, I came across this book and, it, you know, I realized right. I don't have to have a job and I can travel and, you know, have a business or something like that. Prior to that, though, there was certainly a, a, a laptop lifestyle kind of movement. You know, people who were thinking, I want to travel and, and run a business. Um, you know, nomad, nomadism. Um, there were other people who would talk about it. It's kind of funny because I think there's always an underground movement before something triggers it to go mainstream, you know? So right. there was definitely forums. There were definitely other bloggers. There were definitely podcasts. Um, there were definitely community sites, probably even, you know, membership sites you could join that people would help and train other people. Even if it was simple digital nomadism where you're a freelancer, you know, you're not starting a, a like a business you want to grow independently. You just want to earn enough money yourself working and travel at the same time. So it was talked about. Uh, I certainly read a lot more. And I, I think what happens, this happens in all industries, certain icons, people start to surface who make the choice to start publicly talking about what they're doing. Some do it just because they want to connect. Some do it because they realize they want to start a business. Maybe like me, I was sort of doing both. I started blogging because I wanted to start sharing content for the experience of doing that. And then to my somewhat surprise, but not entirely a surprise, I grew an audience and then decided to turn that into a coaching and teaching business too. So I think like me, um, there were a lot of individuals. They just didn't have the scope of audience reach as a Tim Ferriss for our work we book eventually did. Uh, and then of course you fast forward today and like every YouTuber could, will be talking about, or, you know, Instagrammers showing pictures of their travels, their lifestyle, you know, it's like normal. It's, um, it's probably what triggered the whole concept of FOMO is just this idea of everyone sharing too much of their digital nomad life. Right. So I think it's always there. It just grew. And then everyone had a touch point for a lot of people it was Tim Ferriss for others. It might've been me. There'll be people today who probably didn't think of it. And then they discovered, you know, your podcast and your membership site. And, and that that's their first really deep dive into this idea of being a digital nomad. Yeah, I kind of look at it as like, there's three phases in my mind of, of the movement, right? I, I believe like before 08, it was like phase one where you would kind of hear about people doing it, but it was, it was way more difficult to do it. So far less people would kind of take on the challenge and, and, ha and solve all those problems. And then you have like 08 and 09 and whether it's, you know, the far work week or Skype or several of these things that start hmm. kind of popping up. Elance at the time, now Upwork, these things that start popping up that make it a little bit easier. And Airbnb. I think Airbnb, yeah, great, great example, Airbnb coming yeah. out. So, and now I kind of feel like we are either on the tail end of phase two or so, like I think you can make a very strong case that COVID kind of triggered phase three because yeah. I had Phil Libin on the podcast who's um, the founder of Evernote and I kind of asked him like, what do you think remote work is going to look like in 10 years? And he said like, it's just going to be work. Do you know what I mean? It's not like mm -hmm. we're not going to say remote. Everybody's going to be a digital nomad if they want to be just because remote work is headed in, their, in that direction. With you having this scope of, you know, years and years of experience into this, are you seeing the same thing or do you think I'm in some sort of bubble where I'm not seeing the whole picture in that respect? <laughs> no, I, I think you're spot on with your, your phases analogy too. Um, COVID clearly made the idea of an office obsolete uh, you know, or a physical office and, and being together or or at least obsolete is too strong a word really it just de-emphasized it and made i think the concept of where you work way more fluid and, and how you work honestly i'm just grateful it uh, not grateful for covid but grateful that it actually happened and and caused caused this acceleration of the process <clears throat> i remember when i was like we were talking about this before my early days 21 22 23 24 um, and that was early 2001, 2003, I felt so much like a misfit to mm. mainstream society. Like I was like, why, why am I never speaking to anyone else who wants this thing that I want? Like I have to go online and see like this diaspora of people all over the world who, who do this, but you never meet each other in person because by the nature of digital nomads, you're traveling and you're a minority. And there wasn't like, you couldn't go to Chiang Mai and find all these other digital nomads or Bali or, you know, whatever. And, and it was normal. So um, I felt a little bit, I guess, disconnected because of that. Certainly, um, you know, the, 
the, the problem of being a pioneer is you often do it very lonely in some ways, you know. And then you're right. I think as a phase two, if you talk about Tim Ferriss and, and the mainstreaming of it, and you're definitely right about combining that with the advent of more support services, not just the tools, but the training, the idea of being talked about, co-working spaces, co-living spaces. Yep. Um, and then with COVID, it went from being, oh, you know, you're a digital nomad. That's a choice you can make that's unique and special. Not everyone gets the luxury of doing that too. We all have to do it, at least on some level, because we can't be around each other for a while. And then it's like, oh, there's actually some benefits to this. Let's take the benefits and make it permanent in our society. So I'm glad. I remember complaining um, so many times about basic things like why on earth do we all drive to work at the same <laughs> time of the day and get super stressed out because we're all doing it at the same time of the day. Like at the very least, why don't we just stagger industries? Teachers go first, then the financial industry goes so that there's different times of the day people go and drive, you know, even something as simple as that. But now, um, ideally, it will, we won't necessarily have as many people doing a commute. So it should reduce traffic as well. You know, all these benefits you don't think about. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you talk about feeling like a misfit that early on because even when I got started in like 2016, everybody thought I was nuts. Like they were, like, and you know, <laughs> you would always get the thing of like, oh, this is a phase. You're going to grow out of it. You're going to eventually go, you know what I mean? There was like this sort of thing happening. And then I don't know when it was, but because I was involved in the startup space before and I feel like the startup scene was a little bit ahead. But there was this moment where I remember, you know, I was doing digital marketing and I was doing all these things. And I came back here to Cincinnati and talked to some friends that I had previously from the startup world. And they were doing the same things that I was that they weren't doing before, if that makes sense. And I was like, oh, oh okay, something's happening here. You know, this is moving way more mainstream. And then now I, I agree, you know, this is a it's not that interesting anymore, I feel like, because everybody can nomad. And so I'm very, very excited about that. But what are some of the trends that you're looking at? You know, like if we stay with this like idea of like a phase three, you know, I've been very interested to get people's opinion who have a wide grasp of, you know, experience of like, where do you see the trajectory going? You know, maybe we missed the details, but what are sort of the things that you um, are keeping an eye out and you're expecting in terms of the next 10 years in the online business and the just digital nomad quote unquote mm -hmm. lifestyle if, if, if we can say so yeah it's a big question uh i feel i mean there's so many ways i can answer this my straight away my head was thinking just the concept of living in different locations um airbnb obviously is the dominant player but you're already seeing that become a more fragmented industry as well. And I think there will mm -hmm. always obviously be a big player, but I subscribe to Outsite and any place newsletters because I know sometimes I'm like, you know, I would like to stay in a co-living space, but by the way, those are two co-living organizations where, you know, you can get a house in Hawaii where you live with other people, you get your own room, your own bathroom, maybe a shared kitchen space, but it's small. It's not a backpackers, it's modern. Um, and then the other people there are very likely also kind of remote workers, or like you said now, just workers in Hawaii. So they're not, <laughs> um, so that's one thing. So the, the segmentation and fragmentation and specialization of accommodation, uh, even taking that, it became more niche. I noticed any place was setting up co-living spaces with dedicated media production offices in your bedroom. So not that you can see it here, but I right. have a large screen. I have my you know, podcasting camera, the microphone. I travel with some of this, not the large screen, but certainly some of the camera gear and the microphone. This uh, facility lets me just step in. No, none of my own gear. The camera's there, the mic's there. I bring my laptop, plug it in, and I've got a full-blown production studio for video or, or audio, like producing a podcast. So, you know, that would have been I would have never thought uh, uh, that would be something that would be just available in a co-living space as a standard, Yeah, you know? So that's cool. Well, and what the internet tends to do to industries is one mega player and then a long tail of niche providers, right? Yeah. So you might have like an Amazon that tends to serve the masses and sells everything. And then like a huge long tail of, you know, people who specialize in selling coffee mugs for podcasters or something like that, you know? So right. that is a very common thing to happen in, once the internet gets involved. Yeah, yeah. Like, and Shopify, a good example of that, right? All these individual sellers selling the long tail of, of products. Mm -hmm. So so that's one area, like the fragmentation, segmentation. Um, and then more in the, I guess, the emerging technology space, I still feel we're, 
as travelers, digital nomads, a little bit beholden to some of the older institutions around money as well. So I think mm. the DeFi movement, the cryptocurrency movement, uh, has some potential benefits. Even simple things like, like right now, if you know, this is crazy, but if I leave Canada where I live right now, and I want to send a wire from my bank account, I can't do it because the Canadian bank I use does not have an online wire system. I have to go in branch to do it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's really bad. I, I, there's, like my Australian bank does allow me to do an online wire, but that's probably because Australians are more used to having to wire money overseas than Canadians might be. I don't know, but that's so. <laughs> Try Americans. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sure you, you guys have your, you know, a, ACA system, but long story short, you know, they're just moving the basic core function of a bank and just starting to digitize it. But really like my money should just come with me and like cryptocurrency works, my wallet should be wherever I can access it through the online method. I should be able to send money anywhere, convert money anywhere. Um, I should be able to do more than that too. Like uh, I just had a, a fellow on my podcast, um, Joshua Shigala, and his project is called The Standard. And it allows people to, well, doesn't actually operate yet. It's a startup, but its premise is that it's it's a DAO, so a decentralized organization. And it's about you being able to borrow against your own assets uh, without using a bank. So, you know, another situation like, as a digital nomad, this is crazy, but I like own a or am part owner of this Ukrainian solar power plant. I could see a future one day where like my capital, a good chunk of my capital is locked in and it sort of trickles back to me. Then profits start coming in. And sure, you know, big companies do this. They would say, oh, I need to access some of that capital sooner. I want to collateralize my, my solar share. So you go to the bank, they give you a line of credit against it, kind of like what you do with the house. So his company is doing it to start with, with just gold and cryptocurrency. So if you have, say, you know, $100,000 in gold or $100,000 in crypto, and you actually want to hold those assets, but still use that money, you can borrow it. And it's decentralized. So you're not borrowing it from the bank. You're just borrowing it from the DAO and all these people run it. And there's obviously a process to make this work and there's interest that's paid back and so on. But there's no bank benefiting. There's no people controlling the decision making at the top. So imagine if I wanted to borrow against my solar plant while I'm traveling, maybe there's a business opportunity. Maybe I get into emergency, you know, but it's so hard. I wouldn't be able to do that now. So the little things like that you wouldn't think of that are kind of like revolutions in how finance works. So I'm excited about that because I don't see it coming. Like I understand the, the technology, but I don't know how it's going to be applied. And as each new project pops up, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Here's another example I recently learned about um, is a project called Helium, which is essentially decentralizing the mobile phone network and you know the wireless network. So you basically get a little portable device, you put it on your wall, it connects to all the other people's portable devices and you provide coverage to phones and you know internet access. And I can imagine, same story, you have a portable one of those, you take it with you, you're in your Airbnb, you just, or anywhere on the beach, you turn it on and then you're connected to this decentralized Wi-Fi and you can both earn and use it. So you can use it as a user for your internet access, your phone, but you can also just have it sit there for other people's to use and you get you know tokens back. So it could be a passive form of income while you're you know digital nomad lifestyling. So it is a like surprising. I just don't know what's coming. Um, but as a as a nomad, I know I need access to my funds. I need to move my funds around. Um, I run a business, so I want to be able to extract money from that also put money in and i hate all the banking restrictions around it so that's one of the areas i really want to see change and i think it's going to it's clearly going to yeah you know i think i got involved in in like cryptocurrencies just because it seemed so interesting and i'm such a sci-fi nerd that all of a sudden i was like we're living in a sci-fi novel and i love this you know but for me it became really interesting when it started overlapping with my lifestyle and i started seeing how the remote work, people who are invo- involved in remote work who are living as digital nomads or some version of that can use cryptocurrency and how that applies to that. Like, for example, you know, I, you know, you said antiquated uh, establishments. It's like taxation is so like created around you stay in one place, you know, mm-hmm. for example, sure, I'm a US citizen. However, I don't really use the infrastructure in the US. So why should all of my taxes go there? As opposed to if I spend six months in Mexico, some of my taxes should go there. And this is where, you know, micro payments can get involved and imagine being able to like pay a little bit for every time you use the road network or use the mm-hmm. healthcare system mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. And I totally agree with you that where this 
overlap of cryptocurrencies and blockchain and the government functions and taxation is something that maybe not in five years, maybe not even in yeah. 10 based on how governments work, but yeah. hopefully eventually that will catch up. Um, I do want to touch a little bit on the solar power plant because that was so interesting to me, not only because you're investing in a country that's up and coming like Ukraine, you know, it's, you're not putting money into Australia, Canada, or the US. Um, also, I love the fact that it's renewable energy. I think that it's so interesting, but in terms of, you know, the online business, for me, it's always a little bit scary when, you know, all my skills, everything that I know in terms of business is based on online. And there's been several cases where there's been an opportunity that's popped up that's a bit offline. And I'm just so like worried about that transition from going online into offline. Like, did you have anything like that where you were transitioning from everything being done online to then running something that is not only offline, but also takes a lot of capital to get started, like a solar power plant? What was that like? What was that transition? And do you have any tips for anybody who might be thinking about doing the same thing? First tip is have a co-founder who can do all the stuff you don't like. <laughs> um, simple answer to that one. Um I would never have done that if I didn't meet Andrei. He's my my partner in the project in Ukraine, speaks Ukrainian, used to work for the government, has all the connections, you know, could it get all the, everything sorted out, actually connected us with an amazing partner locally who produces a lot of green energy. So they kind of made the path so easy. Um, and I, I fear, I, I hear you when you say like, I'm the same. I even to switch to e-commerce, I go, oh, I have to sell something physical. I have to worry about shipping. I have to worry about you know storage and refunds. And I, I just I've sold online courses or digital services my entire life, basically. So I've never had to deal with the physicality of what I sell, and that, that was a choice and a deliberate one. Obviously, we know how many Amazon sellers there are out there today and Shopify sellers. So clearly, it is a path for a great business and and a, a digital nomad lifestyle. Um, but the solar thing came about not in any reason specifically for a physical business more so than just me wanting to diversify and have have projects i'm excited about so i we were talking about phases earlier i've certainly had phases as an entrepreneur um and my ultimate goal at the start when we were talking about my sort of late teenage years early 20s was first freedom but second to that diversity um but i knew diversity would take a long time because you need capital you need assets um you need you know cash flow to start new things um and you need to meet meet the right people so for me you know first 10 15 years is just about first survival money then just personal net worth but sort of in the last six seven years uh i've been able to then transition to you know angel investing um starting my current business inbox done with the co-founder the solar plant with the co-founder so all these things are ways for me to do things i'm interested in start new projects but compared to say me growing my blogging business which is like me just constantly producing content that was like the yarrow show so it was a lot of work now it's the yarrow and claire show for inbox done plus a team of 25 it's yarrow and andre for the solar plant plus all the people and you know on the ground um, in Ukraine. In fact, I just got a message from Andre this morning telling me that they built a road next to our solar plant because the dust was causing a bit of a problem with, you know, the the capacity of the the solar panels to absorb the sun. So, and I had no idea that was happening. It just happens because our partners do it, and you know, it comes out of the operating costs. But away you go. So the and just to put into context, the reason I even did solar was just this combination of random things that all came together through the course of my life. Like I would have never predicted it. I would have never gone after it. But um, two things happened. One, I visited Ukraine for the first time because I wanted to go to Eurovision. So I was in Kiev for that, which then introduced me to, um, well, I, I was in Kiev and I went to Lviv, which is where my father's side of the family is from that region. And that's where I met Andre. Honestly, I didn't see it coming, but we talked about this solar uh, or green energy initiative in Ukraine. I thought nothing of it. But while that's happening, the cryptocurrency boom is going on in 2017, which is really the first time I joined um, early, probably late 2016, early 2017. I started buying Ethereum and then got into obviously you know Bitcoin and everything else, mostly Ethereum. 
And because of that, I had, um, I called it gambling winnings because I didn't see crypto as anything more than this highly speculative asset, kind of like going to the casino in, in many ways, but we're all doing it once, you know? So um, I had, uh, <laughs> it was so much fun. Like I, 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 I <laughs> it was crazy, but you know, I'd make a hundred thousand dollars in one week and then I lose $50,000 the next week. And it was all on paper. Obviously I was holding it, but it was just crazy because my, teenage and 20 something self if he made a hundred thousand dollars in one week and then lost fifty thousand, he'd be so stressed out because you know that'll be more money than ever seen in his life um i had set aside this starting capital and it just kept growing and growing uh, with along with the crypto and thankfully during that year we came to the point of saying we're going to actually do this uh, whole solar thing um i i reached a point with my travels and maybe you want to talk about this too where I was in Lviv and I was like, I don't know what to do next. I was a bit aimless because the thing with, you know, being a digital nomad, sometimes you have pure freedom, which means no one is telling you what to do. You can live anywhere you want. You can take your business, you know, your income source with you. So there's no cash flow restrictions. I was single at the time. So there's no sense of partnership that I have to, you know, worry about someone and make those decisions together. But I was kind of paralyzed. I was like, I don't really know where to go. I don't have a direction. Um, and that was it. So I was planning on coming back to Vancouver and setting up shop there for a while. But then, you know, we talked and I said, you know what, this seems way more exciting. Let's do this solar thing. I don't know what that means. I kind of understand it, but let's really take it seriously. So I decided to stay in Lviv, booked an Airbnb for three months, booked in language classes, got a gym membership and said, I'm living here while we figure this out. Um, and because I did that, I made the commitment later in that year that I would pull out a certain amount of money from the cryptocurrency market from what I had there because we needed it as the startup capital for the, for the solar project. I did that in December and pulled out half of my cryptocurrency investments. So big chunk of my profits. I left the other half in January, 2018, as most people know, the crash started happening that, that time of the crash. And, um, I watched my other half drop almost 40% over the next few months before I pulled it out. If I hadn't pulled out the first chunk for the solar, I probably would have watched almost my entire, you know, all that great money I made in 2017 come down to 10% of what it was in 2018. So thankfully, it was out. It was safe. Um, I remember speaking to my broker at the, the eToro I was using to buy then. And he said, you know, you're one of the only people who actually pulled money out in time <laughs> a lot of people did it so um grateful but really it was lucky because of this project so i built a green energy project in my father's land uh, ukraine primarily using what i called gambling money in the cryptocurrency market so it was a weird combination of events but it gave me certainly something to focus on and then it gave me diversity now i have a project like you said it's physical it's an income stream that's slow passive over a decade and, and beyond um, I don't really do anything besides we have conversations and make decisions when we need to, but it's not very frequent. And um, it sounds cool. It's so nice to have pictures of your solar farm on your blog because not many people have that as a project. So um, I, I really, you know, enjoy doing it. How do you, I'm curious now that you, you know, you obviously have done so many things in the past. Like you mentioned, you had a website on Magic the Gathering, which I think it's so interesting that you did that so early on because now with the whole like nerd culture and games mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff, that would be like a really great business now. Do you know what I mean? Um, how do you choose projects now? And I think like in the beginning, it can, I think when, if you're just getting started, that can seem like a really difficult choice. But I think in the beginning, it's actually easier because you don't have a lot of resources. So you kind of, your choices are, you know, decided for you they're filtered mm. for you but when you have a lot of resources and you can you know seemingly do a lot of different things you know like build a solar farm or, or whatever it may be what do you do you have a system do you have anything that you use in order to make sure that you're choosing projects that are worthwhile and and, and that are things that you enjoy doing and, and that are things that could be beneficial long term yeah, I like this question for for the audience because it's changed for me and probably a lot of your audience are at the point where they need to make survival money versus they have, you know, millions of dollars in crypto to throw around for a green energy project kind of thing. So, um, you know, I know when I was looking to pay my bills, get my rent, um, I was willing to kind of try everything. And, and like a lot of people, I, I had that shiny object syndrome as well. I made choices based purely on it looked like someone else was doing well with it. Oh, this other person was making money with e-commerce or uh, back then it was 
pay-per-click arbitrage. You could buy ads and then sell mm -hmm. affiliate products and make a profit. Um, so I was gaining some traction. Obviously, my card game business was the first thing I ever made money with, you know, $500 a month selling cards and from advertising. So I knew a little bit about that. Even the choice to start the essay editing company was one because I needed more money and I needed a bigger market and a better market and a bigger profit margin. Like essay editing company, I'm making 50 to 40% margin on services. Card game business, I'm making, I don't know, 10% on a, 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 like a hundred, no, it was like a thousand dollar case of cards I'd make a hundred dollars on an individual card I might make a dollar on. So, you know, it's, a, it's not a path to get rich and, and Magic the Gathering wasn't a huge market. So, but that was a decision I made because I liked the game initially. Mm -hmm. The second company was a decision I made. I need to increase my cash flow. I learned I need a better business model. I need a bigger profit margin. I need the potential to scale. Um, and I have this skill set I can use. I can build a website. I can find freelancers and I can promote and find customers. So let's see if this will work. So that was all I was thinking during those projects. Interesting enough, though, as you move forward to 2005, when I started blogging and podcasting, Although the choice initially was just to experiment with a new tool, in this case, blogging with, with a, basically a content website where I'm the, I'm the brand, I'm the content creator. Um, it was initially experiment, but I did understand the business model behind that. I knew people made money with advertising. I knew people could sell affiliate products. I knew ultimately you could also sell your own digital products if, if you wanted to. I guess even possibly e-commerce, although that wasn't what I was thinking at the time. But... For me, the choice to choose blogging and and really when I say that, I sold everything else. I sold my card game business. I sold the essay editing company. Um, this was two years later in, in 2007. I went all in on blogging and content creation, selling digital products because it ticked the box on the previous thing I was looking for, income potential, good profit margins, a business model I understood that I could do. I knew I could create content. I didn't necessarily see that before I started blogging, but because I did it as an experiment at first, I was like, you know what, I can write. And people are starting to, you know, follow and subscribe to my content. And I am growing an email newsletter. I do have an audience. The potential here is to make money. So um, plus, and this was one thing I never looked for before, I was very driven and passionate about the topic that I was talking about. I was basically kind of preaching, you know, it wasn't called digital nomadism, but I was preaching a, a new way to live your life. Before I guess Tim Ferriss wrote his book, I was teaching the same thing, you know, how to break free from the traditional career path, how to have enough income online, travel, you know, efficiency, delegation, um, elegant business models, all these things that I cared about. So I started teaching that to people and then obviously created a course and, you know, grew a, a, an education business. And that was a, a really sweet spot because, I understood the business model. I was passionate about my role, which was the content creator, the potential for millions of dollars in sales. I could see that. And the profit margins were pretty solid, 70, 80, 90% sometimes. So that was an easy choice to make. And for the first time ever, it was like 100% fulfilling on all levels. The money, the passion I have for my role and the potential to scale and of course, it, it's a travel business. It's a digital nomad business. I could take it with me. And it's not surprising. I still own that business. And that's 15, 16 years later. I, I have yet to, I'm definitely far less involved with what I used to do with it, but it's the one I stuck to the longest. Um, and just to kind of finish the answer, I guess, if I fast forward to the last four or five years where my choices have been way more diverse, angel investing, solar power plant, new company with Inbox Done, now, because I have cash in the bank, because I've got equity, I own property, you know, there's, there's a bit of a buffer there. I think more along the lines of, well, what is something, A, that's a low-hanging fruit, as in I have access to a person or a resource that could help me go after a business opportunity, but also... There's more of me looking for, I guess, something I was bigger and better than your previous projects, maybe in more new industries, like I'm more excited about um, crypto or SaaS or AI or something that's significant, maybe world more world changing. Um, even choosing Inbox Done, my current company was like, this is a need that ties so well into everything I used to stand for. It's freeing people up from email and 
you know, getting them time back so they can travel and do all these things. Uh, that kind of tied into the same ethos, but it was no longer about the Yarrow brand. This is about building a company that other people will essentially deliver the value and I'll just be an owner. So again, it was like, let's see if this works. But I made that choice because I had access to an audience. I had access to the right business partner. You know, those things had to be in place, which compared to say SaaS, I've always struggled with because I don't have an engineer partner mm. that's just ready to go. And I don't feel comfortable throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars or raising capital to solve the engineering problem. So, you know, the day I find the right co-founder engineer is the day I will jump into SaaS. So that's for sure. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about Inbox Done because I think it's such a great idea. You know, uh, if anybody goes and checks out the website, it's executive assistants that help you essentially not spend so much time in email. And I want to get your opinion a little bit about just the entire industry of email because it's still the thing that we always tell, you know, people who are just getting started online is like get an email list as quickly as possible, get an email list, get on email because it's, you know, still the lifeblood of so many online businesses. And it's strange to say that because email is also like the beginning of the internet, yet it's still <laughs> so dominant. And you would think that by now there would be something else that, you know, with how much spam email there is and how overbloated email is that people would have shifted away from that, but it's still kind of staying on there. So tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about Inbox Done and what it is exactly that you do. And then also you know, you having your pulse on the email industry. I know that as a podcaster, I shouldn't be asking two questions, but I'm doing that right now. <laughs> what do you think about... I do you know, it all just the time. Email? Yep. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know, <laughs> I want to ask so many things. I'm so curious. What do you think about email as a tool, as an industry? You know, is it something that we're going to still see over the next 10 years as such a lifeblood of a business? Or do you see other things coming that might take its dominant place? Yeah, it's funny um, to think about a question like, why do we still use email? Um, <laughs> and it kind of ties into another question I used to get asked a lot, which is, do you think blogging will ever die? Um, and obviously, I started with blogging in 05, and I, I certainly was using email marketing almost from day one there as well. So, and the answer to those questions, I've thought about a lot, and I don't think they're, they're going to go away unless the fundamental um, technology changes. So, you know, we still use the written word and the spoken word is a primary communication method. And yes, it's fragmented now. We speak on a YouTube video, we speak on a podcast, you know, we write a message on um, a WhatsApp conversation or a messenger conversation or WeChat if you're in Asia or Kijiji, you know, whatever it is. Um, and not Kijiji, sorry, I'm thinking of a cacao talk in Korea. Um, anyway, all these platforms for chatting or talking communicating some way and it hasn't really changed because in our case we're using english and that the platforms are kind of they're all the same in many ways right so i think maybe fundamentally it might change one day if the interface to this digitized digitized world changes like you know with elon musk working on the Neuralink, if we think about things rather than speak them or type onto a keyboard that would be a fundamental change into the interaction. So we probably will completely change, you know, how how we what the communication tool looks like. I have no idea what that looks like because I don't know what it is like to control things with my mind. And do I see it in my brain or do I see it on the screen? You know, so who knows where that would go. So the short answer is, we're still doing email. Blogging hasn't died. Um, everything is getting bigger and more fragmented, but those things are still uh, key tools. So um, the only like main thing I've thought about that might change is AI removing the human equation. So will the AI bot write your articles for you? Mm. Will the AI answer your emails for you? And even more so, will AI be the entertainment source? Like we already see this. For example, there's an Instagram account with 3 million followers. That's a completely digitized human. So it's not a real human. It's a, an agency. Uh, I think it's up in Vancouver, actually. Or they bought, anyway, it's a company that, runs a, a YouTube, uh, an influencer account on Instagram that is a digital human being. So mm. you can see, and, and we're getting closer to like mimicking human beings for like roles in acting. So the scary part is we may be removed from the equation altogether potentially, but right now we still spend huge amounts of time in our inbox responding to emails 
And it's still the main place I will check every day, even if I'm not the one processing my email, I will still go in there because as a digital nomad entrepreneur, my sales notifications go in there, potential mm. new customers go in there. Um, uh, even simple things like updates to could be the stock market I'm following or the cryptocurrency news, um, you know, just general news in the finance world. So research goes in there, uh, obviously, um, partners, investors, uh, everything goes through that interface. And that hasn't changed. And I don't know how or when it will change. So consequently, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I think, you know, along that point, it's, it's, the, it's the basis communication online, right? Like when you think about where is the bank going to contact you? Like the bank isn't sending you like a direct message in Instagram. It's going to email you. And so it, because of that, similarly to speaking about cryptocurrencies, again, they became a lot more serious to a lot, pe a lot of people when big institutional money came in because all of a sudden it was like, okay, there's, you know, the institutions are getting into this. And so because of that, I agree with you. I don't think email is going anywhere because those places that are so central to our life, you know, the IRS sends you emails, I believe, yeah. you know, so it's like, that's where that communication happens. The only thing that's kind of touching on that is like, if you go to like some other countries where WhatsApp is becoming like a very central place is where businesses are communicating with customers. Um, I think that in there, in some parts of the world, that's becoming more popular, but um, I interrupt you, go ahead with what you, what you were saying about email. Well, yeah. Yeah. Spot on. Like um, I often feel WhatsApp, unfortunately, when it was bought by Facebook, lost the potential to become the WeChat for the West, which mm. if you ever you know, look at what goes on with WeChat in China, it's an entire internet into itself. You know, apps exist on WeChat, e-commerce exists on WeChat, the equivalent of Uber exists on WeChat. You know, you don't go to the browser, you open up WeChat and do everything in there. Um, and and unfortunately, WhatsApp didn't, or at least has yet to become such a force. And it it could be. Um, I, I have a Brazilian friend. He tells me everything goes on in Brazil on WhatsApp. It is just the Same default with tool of choice. Right. So um, and I, the funny thing is, though, you would potentially buy something through whatever, a WhatsApp or a WeChat or even you know directly through Instagram when you see an ad. But then you get the receipt and the invoice in your email account still. You right. know, it still goes to your email as the default place where we store this thing. Um, now that I think about it, though, it, it, it is ridiculous because obviously email is not the most secure platform. It's full of like spam and information that we don't mm -hmm. want. So it kind of drowns out the important stuff. It's why our company exists, of course, but it still it does feel ripe for like a new centralized platform that's more secure. Um, but that would require human beings to all adopt it as their default place. Like we all did that with email. People talked about Slack type communication, replacing email as well, certainly in the workplace. And I think it has removed some of the back and forth that used to happen on email, the back and forth that happens on Slack, but still the fundamentals go on in email. So long story short, the reason Inbox Done, my company exists was because I had a company, which I've mentioned many times on this uh, interview called Better Edit, which was an essay editing company. And for the first time in my life, I, I did travel with a business, not a big trip. I went from Brisbane to Sydney and I was attending a conference. Uh, and of course, this was early days. Um, I didn't even have a BlackBerry yet. They were just about to come to Australia. So no mobile-based uh, email or communications yet. Um, and because of that, I had to go to internet cafes constantly. I was probably every four hours back to a cafe. So I, you know, I couldn't really participate in the conference 100%. I couldn't travel around much because I had to keep finding an internet cafe. Because that business, I was the choke point. I was the person who would make sure the money came in from a customer would make sure the editing job would get to the, the the contract editor and they would agree they could do it in the time frame needed. So I had to constantly be there back and forth. So I came back from that trip going, well, I haven't really built this uh, digital nomad laptop lifestyle kind of freedom business that I thought I was building because I'm still this incredible choke point. I said, well, what's the answer? Clearly, if I'm no longer in the inbox, then I'm actually free. That's where I spend most of my day. So I said, well, how do I do that? I, I need another human being in there doing the email. Like there was no software that could do that. I needed a human. So I actually went to a, a friend of mine from university who was about to have her first baby. I said, listen, I have this potential stay at home job. I have no idea if this is going to work, but if you're up for it, let's, let's try it out. And she was like, totally. Yeah. I'd love to, you know, get a stay at home job. 
And um, we went through a period of about a month of me just stepping into my inbox for my company and, and showing her, here's a typical query we get. Here's how I reply. Um, here's what I sell. Here's how we process jobs. Just basically getting her to clone me so she would understand the context of what I do and how best to deliver good customer service and then how to deal with all the sort of non-customer facing emails too. Like what do I do with a software update or a newsletter email or spam or what looks like a partnership request or a marketing opportunity and so on. So obviously that didn't happen overnight. It took a month of initial training and then she kept learning, you know, month two, month three, month four. But in that first month, I asked her, okay, I feel like you know this. I want you to start writing replies to my email. And for me, in, in my brain, this was the holy grail. Can someone else reply to my emails? Am I okay with that? Do I trust them? Do I feel like I'm going to lose opportunity, lose business because they don't answer emails as well as I was? And it really was an experiment to, to prove myself right or wrong about that. And first month in, she started actually replying. Um, obviously, I looked at her drafts first, but then said, okay, you're doing a good job. Keep going. And then um, I found myself actually like on week five, I, I woke up on a Monday and, and turned on my computer and um, my inbox was zero. Uh, my initial reaction <laughs> was is something broken on the website. You know, where is the emails? Uh, but then I realized she had moved into the inbox before I'd woken up and, and cleared it. Inbox zero when you wake up. How amazing is that, right? So and that was a, uh, an amazing moment because I'm like, wow, what do I do with my day? Because literally I never, I always had something to do. You know, there was always a task or, or uh, my to-do list was in my inbox basically. So, and on, honestly, that's what led to blogging in my entire career from that point forward because I had the freedom to explore these other things. Uh, and just to connect the dots, if you fast forward to, I don't know, 10 years, maybe more than that, probably 12, 13 years later, I had someone or two or three people do my email, every single business I had from that point forward. I never went back. Once you go business class, you never go fly coach again, right? So once you have someone do your email, to go back into your inbox and do everything again is pretty, like it's annoying. So um, I thought it was normal, but I was at this networking event in Vancouver with these other entrepreneurs around a dinner table. And we're all just talking about the problems we face, you know, as you do in a kind of a mastermind. And the woman to my left was saying, well, I wake up and I spend two hours in my email. Throughout the day, I keep getting pulled back to it with the notifications, have to deal with problems, putting out fires, go home at night, put the kids to sleep after dinner, and then open up my computer and do another two hours just to try and stay on top of things, knowing, of course, that throughout that entire time, more emails are coming in. So it's like you're swimming upstream. You, you never really can get ahead. I turned to her and say, well, I actually only reply to messages maybe once a month. Um, you know, I have a little folder and, and maybe once a month I go and do it. And she's like, how is that possible? Because my entire life and business would collapse if I wasn't doing that. I said, well, there's people doing the day-to-day, -day, replying, organizing, managing everything for me. That was an aha moment, not just for her, but for me going, this might be something I should roll out as a company. And like to kind of answer the way you asked me a question earlier about choosing a business opportunity. This was me seeing the opportunity and I knew it was there. This was me experiencing the benefit. I was a customer of it, obviously from the very beginning. So I knew the pain points. I knew what it's like on the other side, once you've actually gone through the process of handing it over to someone. And I had a resource, my existing team, one of them, her name was Claire. Uh, she was doing my email, one of three people doing my email at the time. She showed leadership uh, motivation and, and, and quality. Like I was, I was like, mm, you're the kind of person I could see partnering with on a project. This is perfect because you already know how to manage an inbox. So I went to her and said, do you want to do a, an experiment? This might be a new business. I don't know. We'll just treat it like an experiment. Let's see if we can get one or two or three clients that you will service just as a freelancer to start with. Uh, and if it works, if there's a profit margin, if you can take the system you use for my email and apply it to other people's inboxes and it works, then we can turn it into a business. So we went to my newsletter. We sent an email saying, we're offering this service. You can have the same people who do Yarrow's email, do your email. About five people showed interest. Two became customers. One of them is still a customer now, like almost four and a half years later. And it kicked off Inbox Done as a, a business. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've been pretty much running and growing it ever since. So what's the benefit for anybody listening? You know, obviously you're you're talking, you're preaching to choir here. A lot of online entrepreneurs are listening. And I know one of the very first things that we get told is like, 
find somebody to do your customer service, outsource the communication, you know, get somebody to help you with that sort of thing. But what is the benefit to somebody listening, working with Inbox Done as opposed to going to Upwork and hiring a VA and training them to do their email? What is the benefit that you guys offer over that? Well, probably like a lot of your listeners, um, I've gone to certain outsourcing sites like an Upwork or a Fiverr and, you know, it's hit and miss. Um, the obvious answer to the question, first of all, is email and that form of communication is very personal, very private, has to be carefully handed over. You don't just put someone in the inbox and say, you start replying to messages. So mm -hmm. we built a company that especially hires and trains people to be specialists at inbox management. So that's the first thing. Um, we only take about 1% of the 500 or so applicants we get per month. And for them to become uh, an inbox done manager, they have to go through like a 10 step hiring and then vetting and then training, you know, interview, checking references. Uh, and then of course, we actually have an internal course that Claire, my co-founder made. So you don't get the specialized training and skill set. Uh, and, and of course, we have a handover process that is unique to our company because it started with my own system for managing email. So we took that into Inbox Done. We applied it to other people. We added to it. We modified it, improved it. And now it's working to manage email for or like restaurant owners, venture capitalists, doctors, dentists, lawyers, accountants. Um, we had a candy store owner, real estate agents, uh, property investors. So it kind of applies uniquely to different industries as long as you know everyone has email, we all have the same kind of problems with it. Um, and, and to be fair, it is an executive assistant service too. I went through the experience of trying to hire for basic things like I remember uh, this kind of was one of the trigger points for me, even starting this business, I was trying to hire a basic VA from the Philippines to do some basic things. And I went through about 12 people over a, a year and a half period. And, you know, no, I don't want to put Philippines as like this horrible place you should never hire from because there's so many amazing talented people at very reasonable prices. And a lot of my friends and colleagues have done great building teams of Filipinos. But for whatever reason, I just had this bad patch where, and, and to be fair, I was testing different ways. I was going to agencies. I was going directly to the platforms like Upwork. I was getting referrals directly from my friend. And every single time within a month or two, the person I hired either disappeared completely, was checking in once a week when they said they would do it once a day. Just all these terrible experiences happened mm -hmm. with outsourcing. So I knew, you know, we can't take, we can't go look for cheap labor. This, this is a more costly expensive service than a $10 an hour VA. Now they have their place. There's certain activities that I think are perfect to delegate to a low cost um, overseas contractor. And we know how much is being sent to India. Ukraine, where my family is from, is amazing for programmers. So a lot of companies go to agencies and developers and engineers from there. Um, so it's, it's certainly great for certain things, but we had to build a custom system with a custom team specifically for dealing you know, with this. And uh, besides that, that, the one other thing that we do differently is we provide two assistants to every client. So if you were a client uh, for us, Mitko, we'd assign you two people. They would both learn everything they can about you and your business. They would both learn how to manage your inbox and your email and also anything else like your social media inboxes, they manage your calendar, which is a big one for a lot of clients. Um, certainly basic research, data entry, you know, using your, your software tools that you need to run your business. They could take you out of the loop, really simplify all the processes, build uh, systems and documentation. And because there's two of them doing that, there's this lovely redundancy. And this kind of ties back into my experience with constant turnover. I hated the fact that I'd hire someone, spend a month training them, and then they would disappear. So that's a common experience for a lot of people who outsource and delegate overseas. By training two, one gets unwell or needs to take a break or even wants to leave for another career. The other one still has all that knowledge. So they can train the replacement for the other one. And again, you've got two. So there's never this sense of, we well, got to come back to you and mm -hmm. say, listen, we need to stop service for a month or two or three while we find a replacement and they have to go and learn everything all over again. So that's been a kind of a huge, um, something we didn't start with, but it was a, a, an important evolution um, yeah, to our service. And again, I, that's why we're not like a $10 an hour service is a little bit more boutique, more specialized. 
Yeah, I love that. That was a big lesson for me in the in, in the agency world as well, is to never have like one point of failure, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have one person doing SEO and that person leaves and you still need to deliver an SEO service to your clients, like you're in trouble. So we had a rule of like always having at least two or three people that could fit that role because then somebody leaves, you have somebody remaining there that can help and train. So just a little tip for anybody in the services world that's that's just getting started. But Yara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been uh, super fun. I was really looking forward to talking with you and and hearing all about your experience. Um, Let people know that are listening, where can they find out more about Inbox Done? I'm assuming it's inboxdone.com, but let me know if I'm wrong about that. And then you know, like you've mentioned, you have, you've had a lot of courses, you know, you've written a lot about the whole online business world concept and, and how to do it right. Where can people go and, and learn more from you if that's still something that you're offering? Yeah. So really it's two places. You're right. Inboxdone.com. So I-N-B-O-X-D-O-N-E.com. Um, book a discovery call there. You'd actually get to speak to me. You can tell me all about what you're dealing with with email and other things you want to delegate uh, to assistants. And um, yeah, I'd love to help you. For me personally, my coaching business, I have a podcast called Vested Capital. Uh, everything is at my blog. So yarrow.blog, Y-A-R-O.B-L-O-G. You can see photos of the solar farm. You can see what companies I've done angel investing in. Uh, my All my training, a lot of it's like 95% of it's free. So you can take all the blog posts. There's many free reports. There's a lot of video content. I mean, it's 15 years of, of training. So there's a lot there. You could spend probably the rest of your life studying it all. But if you're in, in the world of wanting to sell education products, and there's certainly a lot that could help you with that. And yeah, we'd love to have you a subscriber, both to the, the blog and the podcast. That'd be amazing. So yarrow.blog. Well, Yarrow, thank you so much. This has been uh, a ton of fun and I appreciate you coming on. And hopefully sometime uh, we can have you back on a second time. Yeah, maybe even uh, meet you in Bulgaria one time, Mitko. I, you, you, I'm looking at photos of the beaches now, so it's very compelling. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Perfect. I, first beers on me, Yarrow. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Mitko. 